Well, if you open your scriptures this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to pick up the reading today in verse 12. These are verses that we've been looking at over the last two weeks. Reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together in your word this day. Thank you that you're God who spoke. Thank you that your Holy Spirit illumines our hearts as we study what you've said. Take your word in the time we have together in this day. Make it clear to us. Help us to recognize how it applies in our thinking and in our behavior. And then enable us as we step out in obedience to that application. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses, verses 12 to 19, that I read to you this morning, and we've, as I say, been looking at it for a bit of time, are obviously on the topic of suffering and trials as believers. Uh, That's the thread It's the key theme. We saw that in the first chapter and in the second chapter and in the third chapter and now in the fourth chapter, God is revisiting the issue for us, uh, driving home to us that if if we're looking for common denominators for believers, this is going to be a common denominator. We will face times of suffering and trials. It's the uniting factor for us. There are no believers who have no sufferings and trials. Some believers have more sufferings and trials than other believers, or at least it appears that way at times. But there are no believers without them at times. And so it is a commonality point for us. And, and what we've seen so far in verses 12 to 16 that we studied, we, we encountered four different principles designed to help us face those sufferings and trials. The first of those principles, you remember, is don't be surprised by them. It's inevitable for us. As 1 Peter 3 tells us, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So nothing strange is going on if we happen to have trials, fiery trials even, in this world. It is a fallen world. We still struggle with fallen bodies. And we struggle with an enemy who's alive and well on planet Earth. The enemy of our souls. Secondly, we saw that we were called to rejoice when we suffer because we can find something in the suffering we can't find any place else, which is a deeper sense of 
what I called koinonia with Christ. We, we sense his presence with us in the midst of those very difficult times. Uh, an intimacy of his presence that is hard to reproduce in a way when circumstances are much nicer in life. And that's a blessing to have that sense of God with me, even in the most difficult times. Uh, we also talked about how sharing Christ's sufferings is the way it's described in those verses. is not a matter of somehow helping out in the atonement for sin. Uh, his work is sufficient, nothing we can add to that. But it is helping out in the ambassador role we've been given. Because how we respond to those sufferings and trials has an impact on everybody around us. And op- to do opportunities come out of it. Uh, we saw last week that sometimes we're going to get insulted for our faith. Note of realism for the often unrealistic believer. Uh, if we are seeking to live for Christ, you're not going to be able to avoid people insulting you for that decision. We had seen earlier that they malign us in the fourth chapter because we don't join with them in their orientation of life. And now we discovered that that maligning can take the form of insults. Good to have a note of realism about it. Last week we ended with the message that sometimes we're suffering in the midst of difficult suffering times because of our own sin choices. In other words, we brought the problem on ourselves by not living in the way God had called us to live. And we discovered that reality that all of us can amen at times in our lives. And he said, in those kinds of sufferings, let's understand that type of suffering is pointless. It brings no grace and blessing, uh, only shame. Uh, So not everything that happens in our life is a useful thing. But when it is in the plan of God, it is useful. Well... Verses 17 to 19 close that whole emphasis for us. Let's look at some of the principles here. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those that do not obey the gospel of God? We need to understand that sometimes suffering in our lives is tied to God's discipline in our lives as his children. The previous point that I was just mentioning is that sometimes suffering comes because of sin choices. There's natural consequences from sin choices. And that that is a suffering that, as I say, we've already looked at. Now, keeping with that idea in general, God is saying our sin choices not only cause natural consequences. Persisting sin choices in the life of a believer bring with them suffering because of God's response to those persisting sin choices. If we persist in a sin choice, God will discipline us as his redeemed children. Persisting sin. Talking about times when a periodic stumbling becomes more of a pattern in a person's life. And how God responds to us as his redeemed children when it's a pattern, not a periodic stumbling. When we periodically stumble, when we sin, the right response to that is to say, I, can, I admit this to you, confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Turn from it, move in the right direction, look for God's grace, say, dust ourselves off, 
make straight paths for our feet and keep moving, moving along. But when it's a pattern we've allowed to establish itself, it isn't enough to just keep saying, well, I'm sorry this happened, and then the next day, I'm sorry this happened, sorry this happened, sorry this happened. Because then it's a persisting issue. And it requires a different response than merely confessing. And God will be disciplining us in the framework of it. This disciplining hand of God and its relationship to some suffering that we may experience in our life is clearly the point we encounter in Hebrews chapter 12, where in verses 4 to 11, let me read these verses to you, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we encounter these words, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Then have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. If we've been redeemed, and of course, therefore fitting into that sojourner exile category that First Peter has been targeting, one of the things that we can know is that God, our Heavenly Father now, takes sin seriously in our lives. He takes persisting sin seriously in our lives. And this is how he responds to those who are in the family, or within the family, which is the context that we're talking about. Uh, by the way, how he's dealing with it isn't an issue of salvation. It's not like he takes it seriously, and if you screw up enough, then you've lost your salvation. That's, that's not the point. Uh, the point is, he takes his role seriously. And he will discipline us to bring us to our senses. Because he loves us. Our Heavenly Father, as Hebrews 12 puts it, is the good Father. The best Father. And here's the point you can take to the bank. He will always, always act as the good Father. Now, in a human level, we say, well, what would you think a good father is? You know, somebody that kind of overlooks anything I do wrong, and, you know, uh, but that's not being good. Uh, it's actually being harming us. But our Heavenly Father is the good father, like a best parent, and he keeps his watch over his children, and he provides the exact right parental response in the face of our disobedience in the face of our persisting in problems, and be even self-deceived as we're persisting in it. As Hebrews 12 puts it, he trains us, helps us to get out of the problems, and he molds us. Here's the thing. You and I, like it or not, 
have a Heavenly Father who simply does not and will not tolerate persisting sin in our lives. He doesn't look the other way. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us too much to let us self-destruct in persisting problems. His loving discipline, therefore, is all about bringing us to our senses. Sort of like Wapman, you look yourself in the mirror and say, how did I get here? You know, And all of us have had how did I get here episodes in our life. And God is saying, I'm trying to bring you to your senses. You're my child. I am disciplining in you in your life not to make you do penance for having done something wrong. I'm not disciplining you as your loving Heavenly Father to make you somehow atone for your sin. Our sins have been forgiven through Christ. There's no atonement left. And penance is not a biblical concept. It is a human concept. One of those human tradition issues that I read to you earlier in Matthew today that has been elevated in many people's minds as being somehow a biblical concept. There's no penance for sin. Eternal loss of salvation, eternal judgment is the penance for sin. In Christ, we pass out of judgment into life. So, God is not disciplining us to cause us to do penance for our wrongdoing as his child. And he's certainly not disciplining us to make us atone in some fashion for the wrongs we've done. Well, then why is he doing it? He's doing it to bring us to our senses. Because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us living in a fantasy world, increasingly destroying ourselves. He wants to bring us to our senses. Now, why would he need to do that? Well, it's pretty simple. Sin, the breaking of God's law, rebelling against God, refusing him his rightful role in our life, brings about hardness and self-deception. Always brings that about. Not just sometimes, always does. Hebrews chapter 3 puts it this way in verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. For what reason? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin in the life of a redeemed believer. And that's what we're talking about here has a double effect. It hardens us, makes us insensitive spiritually, insensitive to the Holy Spirit's work. Secondly, it deceives us. We don't see that's happening. You follow the double problem? I'm growing hard, spiritually insensitive, and at the same time, I'm self-deceived that that's happening. Now, that's a serious problem, to be both hardening and self-deceived about the process. And God says, happens all the time for my redeemed children. And that's why you need to challenge each other. By the way, Hebrews 3 always should be understood in light of Hebrews 10. 
reasons why God says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves with the other believers. Because when we're together, we're not only encouraged to love and good deeds, we're also warned and challenged so that we get out of our self-deception. You ever come in having had some of that hardness grow, and then you're around some of the brothers and sisters, and you say, wait, I'm not where I need to be. I I need to get back on the right track. God says that's what's going on. What he does with discipline is to try to bring us to our senses because we desperately need him to do it. Sin will do that to you. And I'm not just talking about moral depravity type of things. Uh, Just the decision to not let him be Lord of your life deceives you and hardens you. There is no such thing as a believer, redeemed believer, who is not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, who is also not hardened and self-deceived about their condition. When somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, I'm saved, but, you know, I don't think God really takes it that awful serious, and I'm trying to live a good life. This issue of letting him be the Lord, giving up your, you know, yielding your body, is a living sacrifice, how's that all that important? I automatically know they're deceived. Nobody in their right mind would even argue that before God. So if somebody starts to argue for something less than a surrendered lifestyle as a disciple, it automatically proves they are deceived and increasingly hardened in it. They have been calloused by their carnality. And therefore, God is saying, I'm trying to bring you to your senses. Then as your heavenly father... I'm not going to give up doing it. I'm going to keep on doing things to bring you to your senses. I was thinking of the same picture in Revelation chapter 3. Remember at the end of the third chapter there, talking about the church at Laodicea. Listen to these words. It says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, in other words, this is how they saw themselves. For you say... I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that in point of fact you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now that's Hebrews chapter 3 fleshed out. Hardened and self-deceived. Thinking, oh, everything's kind of okay. And God says, shakes his head and says, hey son, hey daughter. The truth of the matter is, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're, you're poor, you're, you're blind. But more than that, he says, I don't want to leave you that way. So I'll love you enough to make you uncomfortable. I love you enough, I'm going to discipline you. And I'm going to use circumstances sometimes, and I'm going to use suffering even in your life, to shake you to the point where you get out of your stupor, and you see it the way it is. We should be exceedingly thankful that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us enough to reprove and discipline us. I mean, when you're looking for reasons to thank God, that's a great reason to thank God. You love me enough to do what I need and bring me back to my senses. When one comes back to their senses... One of the truths that you've come back to your senses is you always look with regret at the period of time you were out of your senses. It's the person who doesn't look with regret at such times that proves they're still self-deceived. 
And God says, got more work to do, back to the woodshed. He is our heavenly Father. And he says here, in moving on, he says, if it begins with us, in other words, this is how God deals with us as redeemed children, what would be the outcome for those that don't obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what in the world will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God takes sin seriously in the life of his redeemed children. He also takes sin seriously in the life of the unredeemed. He doesn't overlook sin, ever. You know, there's only two categories of people in this world, lost and found. Saved and unsaved. Nobody's, well, I'm getting there, sort of saved. You're unsaved until you're saved. Only two categories. And therefore, on another level, there's only two categories. Either you're a child of God or you're not. One who has not been saved is not a child of God. They're a creature of God, but they're not a child of God. Now, one of the consequences of being a creature but not a child is Hebrews 12 does not apply to you. What do I mean? God makes no promise to discipline you in the loving father way of Hebrews chapter 12 if you're unregenerate. Because you are not a child. You are not now given the right to be adopted into the family of God. You are still lost. You are a creature, not a child of God. Only those who've turned to Christ have the right to be called the children of God. So God doesn't discipline. So does that mean, well, then God doesn't care about the sin? Oh, no. (laughs) No, no, he cares about the sin. But he's not going to address that sin in the way he does in my life or your life, if you're regenerate, by disciplining us and bringing me to my senses. He's going to address it by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit about our rebellion against him, calling for us to repent and believe. Because we will face accountability. The unredeemed face accountability. Remember Hebrews 9? 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, to face judgment. That is what everybody's facing, you see. Except those who have passed out of judgment into life. Those who have found Christ, resting in his work on the cross on their behalf, have become children of God as a consequence. God's dealing in the immediate with their sin. Not to make them atone, not to make them do penance, but in order to bring them to their senses. He's the Father actively engaged. With the unregenerate, he is not the father actively engaged. He is allowing the consequences of sin to come down on them. And the question that's posed here, what hope has the unbeliever when facing that God? What hope? What hope is there for a person who has not turned to Christ to find atonement for their sin. Remember Ephesians 2 said, we're dead in our sins by nature, objects of wrath without God and without hope in this world. I mean, that's God's biblical description. And so he comes back to it and he says, let's talk about sin and suffering stuff. What hope is there 
when a person has not turned to Christ to find atonement for their sin. What hope is there when they stand before God and they will and discover He is not their loving Father, but their holy and righteous Judge? What hope is there? And the answer is, none. None. That's why verse 17 says, what will be the outcome? What will be the outcome? All right, why is he adding that here? I think for a practical reason. Because you and I may be tempted if we happen to have been undergoing some of God's discipline as his redeemed children. We may at times be thinking in ourselves, well, in a way I kind of envy the unsaved because they don't feel like I feel. Remember, even earlier in the fourth chapter, they can continue on living disciplined lives and they don't understand why you don't join with them. They can't make sense out of any of that. They can just continue to live in rebellion against God. It doesn't seem to bother them. You ever notice that? I mean, it's not that you never see guilt, but by and large, it's like it doesn't matter. And you say, well, it's made even worse because God's out there disciplining me all the time. It might be kind of nice not to have him disciplining me. And, uh, and listen, don't envy the unsaved in their freedom from the Hebrews 12 disciplining hand of God. Their future is to face inescapable judgment without a Savior. That's their future. Psalm 73, 27 says, Behold, those who far from you will perish, and you'll put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. No hope for anybody. Revelation 20, of course, at the great white throne, the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Books were open. What they'd done, what they thought, what they felt. And then verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because when the books are opened, what hope is there for anybody before a holy and righteous God? The answer is no hope. So, God takes sin seriously in the life of his redeemed children. But he also takes it seriously in the life of the unredeemed, but he deals with it differently. I prefer to be under the disciplining hand of God as a redeemed child (laughs) rather than the judging hand of God, hopeless and helpless, standing before him. Aren't you? I hope you are. And he says in verse 19, Let therefore those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Realize Suffering can actually be God's will for your life. It's very possible for a redeemed child of God to suffer according to God's will. Now, let's be honest. There's things I like reading in the scripture, and there's things I'm not so happy to have found. Uh, This is one of those things uh, that I could suffer according to God's will. It, It would be God's will for me to suffer How could it ever be God's will for me to suffer? Why? But he says it can be. He says it can be. We have as a child of God, a redeemed child of God, to accept that possibility. 
It could be his will. So I look at that and I say, God's will for Gary may not be good health, may not be wealth, may not be safety, may not be being understood by other people. Well, let's change it. God's will for, put your name in it, may not be for you to be happy, wealth, health. That's what that's saying. Like I say, hmm. by the way, this is why individuals, and they're out there, some very prominent, this is why such individuals, when they say something to this effect, it's God's will for you to be happy, pain-free, and prosperous, and healthy. They are speaking from hell not heaven. They are distorting the scriptures, whatever their intent. And their message is a fool's dream. It is not biblically solid. I was in a conference sometime where somebody was saying that very statement, by the way. And got him off to the side and said, you know, How do you reconcile what you just said with, oh, let's say, 1 Peter chapter 4? And there was a little bit of this plum and flexing and saying, well, but it just makes sense that God loves us so much it would be his will for us to be this way and this way. And I said, you've misrepresented God's word. You have no business being up in front of these people. I refuse to sit under anything more that you have to say. My advice is get back into the word and get out of here. They didn't take that advice. But I tend to be a bit directive when I encounter such things because of the terrible things that happen in people who hear it. Hey, suffering can be God's will for us. I still don't like that truth. I'll be honest with you. I still don't like it, but I know it's true because God said it. Well, a couple final things here. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will, let those who do that entrust their souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. If you happen to be suffering according to God's will, decide to entrust yourself to His care and purpose. Now, that challenge we encountered actually it ties back to something we read in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Let me read these verses to you. Verses 21 to 23. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's this final phrase. But he continued entrusting himself... To the one who judges justly. That's what he's challenging us to do here. He says, if you're suffering according to the purpose of God and the plan of God, entrust yourself in the same way the Lord Jesus entrusted himself to the Heavenly Father. Entrust yourself to him. The word entrust here comes from a Greek word which means literally to hand oneself over to. 
It's the same thing as saying, as Jesus did at the end of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's what that means. To hand oneself over to. Say, okay, your way, God, that's, that's what I want. That's what, I'm going to keep trusting your purpose. I'm going to trust you to empower me in the suffering that is apparently your purpose. I'm going to trust you to use this suffering to accomplish your purpose. I'm going to keep trusting in your ultimate justice over my life, even if it seems I'm in an unjust situation at the moment. We're in a fallen world. Where in the world do we come off thinking we're going to find very much justice here anyway? I mean, that's the definition of a fallen world. <laughs> Rebels against God. Injustice is there. So, if you're suffering according to God's will, decide you're going to entrust him. You're going to say, I'm going to be like my Savior. He was getting a lot worse treatment than I'm getting. But he was trusting God about it. I'm going to trust God too. I'm going to rest in him. I'm going to put myself into his hands. Your will, not mine, be done. Good advice. And then he says, not only that, but I want you to do that while you keep doing good. Decide to keep on, keeping on, doing the good things. Now here's why that is there. Because the fact of the matter is, it is human for us, even as redeemed children of God, to develop a certain amount of cynicism if we've been encountering lots of suffering. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in case that's happened to you, but it can happen, all right? A certain amount of cynicism begins to develop. A certain amount of discouragement. Times where, even if you don't say it to somebody else, you're saying it to yourself and indirectly to God, where you're wondering, is it even worth it, you know, to do what God's calling me to do? Uh, where's it got me? I was thinking of the psalmist in Psalm 73 in this regard. In verse 13 of that psalm, he says, the psalmist, by the way, the first part of the psalm, he's looking at the people who are doing all the wrong things, and everything seems to go well for him. And he's looking at the people who seem to do the right thing and want to be right with God, and everything's going wrong for them. It's just, just the opposite of the picture that you'd like to see happen. And so in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain... Have I washed my hands in innocence? Because all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, Cynicism creeping in. Is it worth it trying to be godly? Is it worth it trying to please God? Look where it's got me. Then he says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus. And by the way, what it means when I will speak thus, it means if that will become my settled position, if that becomes the thing I'm communicating to everybody around me and living, he says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. We've been talking about kids this morning, and we have that parenting thing later, and the kids are out watching. I want you to understand the seriousness of this right now. Serious. You actively betray all of those young lives if you have cynicism before the Lord about the struggles of your life because you set a message to them. They're precious kids. Don't betray them. 
Don't betray them. Say, God knows. He's trustworthy. We will rest in Him. Not only say it, but then do the good. What's that mean? I'll keep on doing good even when I'm in facing suffering. Even in the hard times. I'm going to determine to keep on ministering to other people, doing the things that serve God and serve His purpose with whatever strength and resources remain. Maybe some of it's been eroded by the very hard times itself, but what I got left, it's God's. If you say to them, well, I'm trusting God, but you're living a neutralized life, you are lying through your teeth. Open up your eyes. Be honest with God. I don't care how much you've got left in your life. It can be used productively, fruitfully in the service of God if you put yourself in His hands. He may not get rid of the suffering. That's His purposes. That's His plan. That's His purpose. You, however, with whatever you got, can say, I'm going to keep on doing good. Good defined as serving Him, being fulfilling His purposes and plan. It's not only what we say, but what we do. Do you follow it? I don't want to betray these precious kids by what I say. But I also don't want to betray these precious kids by what I do or don't do. Pretty serious stuff, brothers and sisters. God intends it to be such. He says, don't betray them. Don't betray them. You say, well, but Lord, I am discouraged. And he goes on in that Psalm 73, and he says, But when I thought out to understand it all, it just seemed like such a wearisome task. Because, boy, when you're suffering, it seems wearisome, doesn't it? But then he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Meaning, when I got in the framework of God's Word, I saw the big picture. And there's no way to get out of the wearisome without seeing the big picture. That's what First Peter's telling us about. There's a big picture here. There's a big picture. Last word. If you're suffering according to God's will, don't give in to the temptation to try to bribe God. What do I mean by that? It is easy for us to be tempted to try to bribe God into giving us deliverance from the suffering by saying, well, if you'll only do this and only do that, then I will be this and that. God said you should have been this and that, independent of the suffering. You can't bribe God. This isn't a negotiation. And here's something the Bible will make plain to you if you study the Bible. God doesn't trade your surrender for your good times. The only one who implies that that would happen is the enemy of our souls. I'll give you an example. In Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you, have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? 
You bless the works of his hands, his possessions of increase in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. I.e., yeah, Job is going through the motions of supposedly following you, but that's because you made life easy for him. You must have had a negotiation here where you said, well, you do the right things, I'm going to do this stuff, put a hedge around you. Who is bringing that teaching to the front? Satan, not God. So God, you remember, said, well, go ahead, take all that stuff. Take all that stuff. Even his wife, after the second round, said, just curse God and die. So will you curse God in the midst of the inescapable sufferings according to the will of God? Or will you commit yourself to him in the face of those same sufferings? Is it going to be curse or commit? What's it going to be? You know, How's it going to work? That's how he ends this portion about suffering. Will you curse or commit? We're not in a negotiation position with God. We couldn't negotiate for our salvation. It had to be offered freely through Christ dying on our behalf. We unworthy sinners that we were. We can't negotiate for our willingness to surrender as a redeemed believer. What do you bring to the table anyway? You know, That is our, as Romans 12 puts it, our acceptable worship. In other words, the logical thing to do in light of Romans chapters 1 to 11 is to present your bodies a living sacrifice before. I mean, that's a logical thing. That's not a negotiation point. It just means what else can you do if you're in your right mind but to offer him to be Lord. That's, that's what it is about. Well, the good piece of all of this, perhaps today, you can come on up. The good piece of this, perhaps, today is that uh, we change topics next week, you know, start the fifth chapter, and uh, begin to focus in on some lessons about church leadership and how God intends leadership to function in the context of the church, the redeemed local church. And... Needless to say, as we've been seeing throughout the book of 1 Peter, what God has to say about leadership is quite countercultural to the assumptions about leadership that we find in the world in which we find ourselves. How's that surprising at this point? So, Lord willing, that's where we'll turn next. Pray together. Father, we thank you for time together on this day to sing your praises to sharing your word, to pray together. Take us as we come before you. Keep us in our senses, Lord, is the expression of your loving parenting over our lives, that we might in fact live lives that honor you, enabled by your spirit, transformed by your word. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.